everybody and welcome to episode 146 of Herpetological Highlights. I'm Tom Major and co-hosting with me, as always, is Ben Marshall. And this bi-week, we have got an episode about iguanas. Well, they're weekly now. They're weekly, yeah. See, yeah right, they so are weekly now. We could almost retire the nonsensical, ambiguous and borderline useless phrase bi-week or bi-weekly. Yeah, but we still have the species of the bi week, which I feel oh, yeah, like we'll live on. kind of vital <laughs> to our success, you know? Like, but yeah, in any other context, we could probably stop saying bi week. But yeah, we're talking about iguanas in this episode. And um, yeah, fun study about some wild iguanas, which are having some sweet treats that maybe they shouldn't have. So yeah, this is kind of like the paper that we discussed, well, it's quite a few weeks ago now, about the sea turtles. We had that study where sea we turtles did. were being fed squid by tourists and it was meaning that they were going a bit wild they had this really unnatural level of competition around the tourist boats that were giving them squid and it was turning the turtles into menaces and they were just sort of attacking (laughs) there was exceptionally high densities of turtles trying to get this squid and the delicious squid was reducing their consumption of kelp and like the food they should have really been eating right it was this sort of yeah all they wanted was dessert, and they wouldn't they eat their greens. Was, yeah, they just wanted that easy, easy squid, um, yeah. even though it's not necessarily the best thing for them. But yeah, this is kind of a similar idea. I'll introduce the paper. So it's by French, Hudson, Webb, Knapp, Virgin Smith, Lewis, Iverson, and Donado. Glucose tolerance of iguanas is affected by high sugar diets in the lab and supplemental feeding by ecotourists in the wild. Published in the Journal of Experimental Biology in 2022. Yeah. So iguanas. Yeah, we're talking about big iguanas, mate. Yeah. I watched some videos of these tourist islands where all this is going on. And um, they're these big grey iguanas. They've got pink legs. They're sort of like a bit of a granity look on the body, but with pink legs. They're a bit of like yellow mixed in too, though. Sometimes, yeah. I didn't see many yellow ones. Mm. But I mean, it's probably a little bit of Rhubarb and custard iguanas. Yeah, but the heads... The heads and the arms are quite pink and um, they're living on this picturesque island or a group of islands known as the Exuma Cays. This is in the Bahamas. It is a bit of a paradise. There's white sandy beach and then as you get to the back of the beach, there's like some nice rocks and then it sort of becomes a like palm sort of forest, I guess you could say. So it's very picturesque. I think the iguanas have got it made. But what happens is, as soon as a tourist boat comes along, or any boat really, they just know the sound of boats. All of these iguanas come scurrying out of the palms and they're just like, what's going on? They come down to the shore. And the reason is because people love to come and feed them grapes. And um, it's not just grapes. Grapes they and get various there. other fruits and berries. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think the, a lot of the videos I saw, people were putting grapes on sticks and they would like feed the iguana like that, yeah. which seems a good way to not get chomped. But other people were just sort of like covering themselves in grapes, laying on the beach and then just letting the iguanas sort of. <laughs> okay. I didn't, I, I didn't see anything quite that extreme. I saw people like throwing gra- grapes at iguanas. Yeah. That was. Also probably not fair on the iguana, but... Um, yeah, it's a bit sort of... Yeah. Um, it's not very respectful as it to just launch the, the grape Exactly. The That's the impression I got, was like, yeah. all right, I've got to feed this grape to this iguana because it's a touristy thing to do. I don't really like iguanas. I want to be close to them. I'll just lob it at it from a few metres away. It's unbelievably undignified for the iguana. There was a few things happening in some of these videos which I wasn't 
entirely on board with there was one guy and he was like filming the iguanas and he seemed like a big iguana fan he was like you know chuffed to be there filming the iguanas talking about the iguanas and then he's got his little kid by the hand and like halfway through the video you just see this little foot come out and just like try and kick one of the iguanas and i was just what outrageous little bratty kid some people were also feeding them like white bread which i don't know if they're anything like ducks probably not the best thing for them to eat but it's all just like anything living really i don't think there's anything that sort of gets stronger from eating white bread you can sort of maintain a base level of survival on white bread but you don't get stronger and if you're in the wild yeah nah well speaking of the wild in the wild these iguanas do eat but not loads of it it's probably quite scarce and they do supplement that fruity diet with lots of leaves and flowers and things which are probably a little bit less calorific and so it's thought well, less grapes... sugar dense, right? Exactly. That's the difference. It's that that glucose and fructose in the fruit. Yeah, and so yeah, the scientists behind this study they basically just wanted to see whether or not this was having any kind of negative effect on the iguanas, and so they wanted to test their glucose tolerance. And in humans, it's well established that if you have a high sugar diet for a prolonged period it kind of exhausts your body's ability to regulate its blood glucose and so these effects are made worse they're compounded by excess fats if you have a high fat high sugar diet um, your body's ability to regulate blood glucose will be less good and you can even end up curtailed yeah you end up with diabetes if you're not careful and that's certainly true for mice and so yeah they wanted to see whether or not they could see this kind of or the beginnings of these kinds of effects in iguanas so they were testing their glucose tolerance and they were quite smart about it weren't they they had some green iguanas in the lab which are kind of a proxy for these uh they're called bahamanian rock iguanas northern bahamian rock iguana cyclura cyclura but um they weren't going to use those in the lab because they're endangered there's not really lab access to that animal whereas iguanas you can just buy online um so green ones so they bought a bunch of green ones online fed them a high sugar diet or half of them a high sugar diet and then half not and then they also had luckily for them they managed to get to go out to the bahamas and they took some samples from iguanas and they were looking at and seeing how these wild iguanas also reacted to eating sugar and whether or not they could uh, manage their glucose response yeah that's the idea isn't it is if you've had this like chronic this this sort of chronic exposure to high glucose it's when you're then given another batch of glucose how quickly does your body metabolize that or deal with that and if it's sort of very slow process the indication is that your body's probably not very good at keep dealing with that and there's a reduced capacity to deal with glucose and the fear is that the ones being fed all these grapes are going to have that inability to deal with the glucose yeah so our wonderful green iguanas in their little captive environment being fed tasty treats the so it's what is it 17 days i think it was that they were half of them were given or a third of them half of them were given a high glucose diet that's the sort of setting them up as as being the this is iguana in high glucose mode half of them not once those 17 days are done then the sort of experimental aspect really kicks in and they're given uh very prescribed specific doses of this sort of was it like glucosey water was essentially it right yeah 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 they just used a dose syrup of a concentration that would match or is comparable to a tasty 
grape treat that the wild ones would be receiving. I bet they loved that glucose syrup. I bet they were all over lapping that up. Because I was wondering initially if they were going to have to sort of like squirt it in or something. But actually, I think they were just like well up for it. Well, I don't know, to be honest, because I think they did. I think they did. I think it was forcefully administered. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, that's my mistake. Yeah. yeah. In my mind, I was just like, here you go. Little. The guy's like... <laughs> I think the reason that you would do that in this context is to ensure that the entire mixture was ingested yeah. and all of it was, you know, you're not going to get an individual that ate, you know, three quarters. You want to keep everything as controlled as possible. It's probably not as pleasant for the iguanas, admittedly, but... I think there was there's a reason behind it is what I'm trying to get at. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, their findings were quite interesting, actually. As it turns out, both lab and wild high sugar iguanas had their glucose metabolism significantly affected by their high sugar diets. It's altering the way in which their bodies cope with sugar. And there's a number of ways in which the glucose metabolism of these iguanas were being modified first of all they have a higher baseline blood glucose they also have a slower return to baseline glucose levels following a glucose challenge which is where they're given a big (laughs) hit of glucose and they also have lower baseline uh, cortisol levels which is a stress hormone so and they think that might have some involvement in the regulation of glucose they're not quite sure but they tested it just to see and sure enough there was a measurable difference in that too between the the groups of iguanas that were given the high sugar diet and not and they did also have the advantage of checking some wild iguanas that didn't have access to high sugar because the tourist boats don't go to every island there's like a bunch of islands with iguanas on and the boats are only in the habit of going to a few so they were able to test wild and non-wild sugary iguanas and lab and non-wild sugary iguanas and yeah sure enough there is this quite dramatic impact on their glucose metabolism through eating loads of sugar. You know, I don't, it's not really a surprise to hear that because, you know, if it's true for mammals and humans, I mean, lizards are obviously slightly different, but why wouldn't it be the same if they're suddenly pounding way more glucose and fructose than they would in the wild? Um, then they're going to end up with a bit of a uh, modified system. What is kind of a shame is that we don't really know what that means for the rock iguanas, you know, definitively. There's no sort of like long term studies comparing the health and well-being of these iguanas, which have the high sugar diets against ones that haven't. So we don't really know. But um, I don't know if you had a gun to my head, I'd be like, yeah, they'll probably get lizard diabetes. Well, that's the thing. That's the fear, isn't it? Because you've got I mean, we sort of skipped over the So that whole like giving them dose of glucose that was done for the the wild ones as well as the uh lab based ones so same experiment wild and in lab and yeah you have this pattern that matches up really nicely between them it doesn't look good <laughs> it, it's quite a conspicuous difference between the sort of sugar peak of the i was gonna say pre-sweetened iguanas would that be the way of describing them yeah and the ones that are having their normal diet or a non-pre-sweetened diet it's not like it looks like a pretty significant difference to be honest when you there's not much overlap no so i think your worst fears of lizard diabetes are probably quite founded like whether that amount of sugar is sufficient to push them to that level who knows but i think it's quite telling that 17 days of sweetening pre-sweetening for the lab iguanas had an effect and the ones in the wild have been pre-sweetened for multiple years at this point. Like, this is a chronic high-sugar, high-fructose, high-glucose diet that they are probably well, probably quite enjoying. But um, mm. I mean, looking at the videos, the mate, they absolutely love it. Yeah. 
yeah, they love long term health. I mean, you know, it's a totally relatable thing to enjoy. I really like grapes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you have to be hand fed them, though. The iguanas yes. will eat them off the sand. I can't eat them unless I'm on a chaise long with someone fanning me as well. But <laughs> what I would say, you know, I feel like this, you know, it's like big, it's not that big of a problem in my mind. Like, obviously, it's not ideal that people are going and feeding the iguanas. But then again, also giving these iguanas. You know, that tourist money is probably incredible for the fact it's going to help their conservation in some way because they suddenly have this like intrinsic value. And people, well, I would say that's not an intrinsic value, that's the opposite of intrinsic value. That's very economic money making <laughs> oh, right, value, yeah. isn't it? You're right, it's an extrinsic value, yeah. But nevertheless, I think, yeah, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. People want to go and see the iguanas, whether or not they should be feeding them. Yeah, it's kind of another thing. At the very least, they should probably start feeding them things that are a little more close to what the iguanas are supposed to eat. Well, that would be the smart move, wouldn't it? Was, okay, if you're doing iguana tourism, instead of, like deer biscuits, you know, you get those parks that you feed the deer. I've never done Specific deer biscuits. (laughs) No. Presumably those deer biscuits are, are decently balanced so the deer don't get high sugar, you know, high, high fat, high carbs, whatever, whatever's bad for deer. You know. I feel like they've just scribbled out dog and written deer on the box. For all I know, they might have. My point is that is there are definitely setups that people are allowed to feed. The deer are borderline wild. I mean, you're sort of getting into this weird, like, pseudo-domestic sort of scenario, but where you go feed animals, but you make sure people have the right food to feed them. Mm. I don't know. I don't know how much this iguana tourism feeds back into sort of local economy stuff. I don't know. So I don't want to sort of assume that actually it's done the right way to begin with, because yeah, I, I could certainly see it being done in person from overseas takes their fancy boat to place in Bahamas with some grapes, feeds iguana, leaves, and you can just sort of bypass local economy entirely. So I'm not mm. entirely positive <laughs> that the whole tourism thing is being done the right way. I don't know, but I could certainly see it not being. They call that enclave tourism, don't they? enclave tourism where all the profits go back overseas yeah i did see some other sketchy stuff though like when i was watching these videos it seems like there's another one of the islands nearby where you can sort of do the same trip in one day but there's just like loads of massive pigs so obviously pigs (laughs) pigs of course pigs the bahamian pig yeah no pigs hogs as an invasive species obviously pretty native Yeah. yeah i don't know i don't think there's like a lot of responsible stuff going on in the sort of Exuma Islands? Yeah. It's the key. It's, it's, it's a bit of a... Certainly the impression I was getting is a little bit Wild Westy in terms of anyone keeping track of these things, which is why a study like this, trying to get a handle on the impacts of that food, food supplementation, is uh, probably super useful. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. The jury's out on whether or not there is actually a big effect on the iguanas themselves. These... Uh, Bahamian rock iguanas but uh yeah it's definitely doing something (laughs) yeah like just feed them salad i guess if you're going to feed them at all rather than feeding them grapes but um still it's an interesting case i suppose the fear is if you were feeding them salad maybe they wouldn't be motivated to overcome the fear of going near people perhaps i don't know Mm, they seem pretty chill to be honest yeah they don't seem to think of humans as a threat from what i saw they seem to be pretty willing to just like bus over to people and sort of say what's up maybe a bit of salad would uh would be all right. Yeah. Let's move on, shall we, to our species of the bi week. Mm-hmm. 
So, our species of the bye week this time is by Ortega Andrade. I need to sort out how I've got these listed. Ortega Andrade, Bentley, Cock, Yanez Munoz, Entiaspunento, a time relic. A new species of dwarf boa, Tropodophis bibron, 1840. I've just read the uh, designation there, why not? From the Upper Amazon Basin, published in the European Journal of Taxonomy in 2022. So, I've got a brand new species here, a little snake from Ecuador. It's called a boa. They've called it, you know, the common name for this group of snakes is boa, a dwarf boa. Everyone's hyped about a new dwarf boa, but this isn't a boa. It's not a boa at all. Boas are in the family Boidae, and this creature definitely isn't. So this is actually from the family Tropidophidae. They're not even that closely related. Tropidophidae. <laughs> Tropidophidae, yeah, I know. It's not. Running out of names, I swear. Yeah, they're not even closely related to true boas. They were once thought to be related to true boas when they were first sort of found. And so the name Pretty is Pretty understandable. Stuck. Yeah, they look boa-ish. Yep. You know, the dwarf part is accurate. Most of the species in this family, they're tropidophids, as they're known, are only sort of a couple of feet long or less. It does contain Tropidophidae. I'm just going to keep saying it. The the family contains that really cool genus that contains the eyelash boa. That's um, Trachyboa. Again, boas popping up there. And it's also not a boa. But they are cool. They've got the little eyelashes, sort of like a non-venomous eyelash pit viper and fatter. But yeah, I'm, you know, we should probably all just collectively stop calling them boas. And in fact, um, Andrew Dursu in his blog, Life is Short, But Snakes Are Long, talks about this and he reckons there's some other names for them which i think are quite good oh yes yeah so in cuba a lot of the snakes in this family come from cuba and sort of like surrounding islands as well yeah, jamaica yeah. actually yeah so in cuba they're known as culebras bobas which means dumb snakes <laughs> and uh, <laughs> oh no yeah and on andros island in the bahamas they're known as shame snakes and they think it's because they hide their heads as a defense mechanism. So they think, oh, oh they look, he's, a little, he's a bit ashamed. It's but my shame. favorite is what they call them in the West Indies. And they call them thunder snakes because they're that's frequently more like seen it. after severe rainstorms. Yeah. So that's um, more like it. That's yeah. more complimentary than shame snake or dumb snake. Yeah. But yeah, so Andrew reckons that we should call them Caribbean thunder snakes. I agree. Oof. Yeah, that's a that's a winner. Yep, that gets my vote. So yeah, we've got a new species of thunder snake from Ecuador. And it's adorable. It is cool, isn't it? Like, we often talk about how cool new species are, but this one is pretty awesome. What does it look like? Well, it's this beautiful sort of goldy orange tan. Has a quite spaced out black and tan checkerboard uh, underside. The checkerboard sort of heads up onto the body but the splotches get very broken and just sort of catches the tips of uh, tips of the scales and they're quite faded it's got quite a wide stubby face i would say and its eyes are just adorably dopey looking it's almost got those anaconda eyes that poke in two different directions with just this very small quite round pupil dead center and a very Almost cat eye like the amount the eye sticks out, bit buggy, is very pronounced. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of a buggy. So it eye. gives this very dopey looking little snake face. It's very, very cute. Very, very cute. I, I am a big fan of this one, and I quite like the name as well. So they've called it. What's the genus again? Tropidophis. Tropidophis. 
Yeah, Tropidophis. Tro- the, the full name is Tropidophis cacoangue, uh, and that cacoangue, cacoangue is a noun, in, and it's actually in relation to this person called Dolores Cacoango, who was this Ecuadorian benchmark of feminism and human rights back in the sort of early 1900s. And she claimed the identity and rights of indigenous people. So she was like a big, big proponent for um, the indigenous peoples of Ecuador. And she also demanded that Quechua, which is, it's not one language, it's like a set, a group of dialects. So it's not just like a single language. It is quite variable on the sort of West Coast or on the sort of Western side of South America. But there was like a lot of controversy because obviously Spanish was very popular and Spanish was kind of like the main language that people were using to communicate. And in some schools, you weren't even allowed to speak Quechua. But she was like a massive proponent, um, made sure that these languages didn't die. So, yeah, really, really powerful individual from history that they've named the snake after, which, yeah, is actually kind of cool. Yeah. I forgot to mention how big it was. Go on, how big is it? About 30 centimetres. Oh, quite modest. Quite a modest species. Yeah. And weirdly, like, second half heavy, or at least judging from the photos, it appears to be quite back heavy as snakes go. Yeah. Yeah, that is quite boary, isn't it? I can see why people thought they were related closely to boas. They also have this really weird defence mechanism. They auto-hemorrhage, so they can squirt blood out of their eyes. Oh, good. In some of the species, they'll spread it over the body to sort of um, deter predators. I think it must have a foul taste or a foul smell. It's probably something chemically. Yeah, I don't really want to work that out. Thanks. No. I'll take your word for it. No, but they'll also curl into a ball as a last resort. And yeah, they're found on the eastern side of the Andes, over a thousand metres above sea level. So it's like in Ecuador, sort of quite high altitude, moderately cold, but still tropical climate. And yeah, just a cool little snake. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know, I, I quite like the habitat shots they've got of these dense forests, the sort of foothills of mountains and a very swampy, flooded environment. You can imagine a small boa slipping its way through logs and flooded areas quite nicely. You could imagine quite a hidden. small boa doing it. Crucially, this isn't one. You could, oh, that's, that's true. Yep, <laughs> you could imagine a thunder snake yeah slipping through the logs and the and the damp undergrowth they're so cool thunder snakes yeah so there we go welcome to the scientific community tropidophis kakuangue um yeah have you got any other business for this episode ben no i don't i don't have any other business at all Okay, so I've got one. We had a correction from Matt Slattery Holmes. So I made the mistake of insinuating that Hamilton's frogs, which are those weird, um, silent, so-called tailed frogs from New Zealand that we were talking Mm. about recently, were only found on the South Island of New Zealand. But they were in that Zealandia sanctuary. And Matt pointed out that Zealandia sanctuary is situated in Wellington, which I did say. But Wellington is actually at the bottom of the North Island, not the top of the South, as Tom erroneously claimed. So, yeah, uh-huh. I was getting my eyes mixed up. <laughs> he, go, he went on to say, uh, this isn't a hurt correction, so not worth mentioning on the show. I just had to say something. Well, Matt, it turns out it is worth mentioning. So Definitely. Correction is a correction. Exactly. And... Yeah, we got a few new patrons as well. So yeah, mm. big shouts to Ella Buchanan, Taz Matilda and Marta Kopech for the support. It's ex- 
extremely kind and generous. And if anyone else would like to become our Patreon and support the podcast, you can at patreon.com slash herp highlights. And uh, yeah, we're extremely grateful for the support from the patrons. We've got a new soundboard, which is pretty sweet. So I'm being very restrained at the minute and not playing loads of crazy sounds, but it is really nice to have it. And we can like do loads of cool, fun audio editing stuff. We can hear things live we can both hear them where before we had to edit it all in and it's super, hopefully super it's going to be an enriched audio experience for all it will be yeah it will be a rich soundscape once i learn all the ins and outs of this machine we did have quite a few technical difficulties this morning but we got there in the end <laughs> so yeah i think that's about it if you want to get in touch with us you can um herp highlights at gmail.com is the address for that um we're on social media you know instagram facebook twitter all those ones so if you want to find us on there please do and um yeah i think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening and yeah we will be back next week yeah thanks for listening <laughs>